0: To Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Today's podcast is sponsored by Sweet Spot Labs. Intimate dryness is one of the menopausal symptoms I get asked about most in my practice. And it's no wonder estrogen is to the vulva what collagen is to the face. As estrogen decreases, so does the natural moisture in your intimate skin, such as the labia and hair-bearing areas, which can lead to itching, burning, and increased sensitivity. The product I recommend to rescue intimate skin from this discomfort is Rescue Balm from Sweet Spot Labs. No joke. It's an ultra rich intimate moisturizer that is 100% naturally derived and packaged with active levels of collide oatmeal, zinc oxide, sweet almond oil to soothe and protect intimate skin. I not only love what's in it because it really works, but also what's not in it. So Sweet Spot Labs has been pioneering clean, intimate skincare since 2003. And they formulate without any common irritants, allergens, hormones, hormone disruptors, or yeast food sources. Rescue Bomb is free from water, preservatives, fragrance, silicones, propylene, glycol, steroids, hormones, parabens, glycerin, and even from poor clogging ingredients like coconut oil, just to name a few. And like all Sweet Spot Labs products, Rescue Balm is hypoallergenic and clinically proven by unbiased third party gynecologists and dermatologists to be non irritating on intimate skin, even with daily use. That's why I really, really feel comfortable recommending it to anyone and everyone, including me and even those with very sensitive skin. Visit Sweet Spot Labs. And use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off your first order. That's S W E E T S P O D L A B S dot com and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off. Good afternoon, my AOWs. Thank you so much for clicking into the show today. Confession straight up, right from the get go. I have recorded this intro several times. <laughs> it's because I'm really self-conscious that I'm using a very old microphone setup. I'm using this old headset with this microphone attached and true story, you see my husband's video gaming headset and I used it in 2018 when I first launched my podcast. Quickly thereafter, I leveled up and ordered this cute little blue Yeti microphone that I used for, you know, the next hundred or so episodes, and then my beautiful swing arm podcast mic. But I'm in the middle of a really big life change. I'm in the middle of a move. So that set up my desk, everything that I know is on a truck somewhere. So I'm coming to you from the old headset because I'm so committed to making sure I get this podcast episode out this week. This is so unfancy. I sound like I'm in a box. I sound super congested, which a little bit is true. I don't have this thing called a pop filter, which softens the podcaster's P's and S's. So I hope you can bear with me. All right. Confessions out of the way. No intro today because I have already tried to make this too many times. Today I wanted to talk about lab work. What does my lab work mean? Or, hey doc, my, my doctor told me my labs were normal. I feel like I'm having a hormonal imbalance, but my labs are normal. They're not showing that. These are all questions that I get asked on a daily basis by patients, via social media, and it's definitely a conversation and a podcast episode you cannot hear enough times. Without any fancy intros, we're going to get right to the meat of this. We're going to talk about lab work today. To start, I think it makes the most sense when we separate perimenopause from postmenopause. And next, lab work must be taken in context with the clinical picture with your symptoms. So lab work hormone levels are just a random point in time. More points in time can help create lines on that data chart. So a point in time isn't terribly helpful, but understanding how you feel the times surrounding leading up to getting that lab work drawn is really important. So again, you have to separate perimenopause from postmenopause, and you have to understand the context, the symptoms, the why behind the lab work. Let's start with a woman who's postmenopausal. Postmenopause is a little bit easier because your hormone levels stop to fluctuate. By definition, menopause is one year of having no periods and an elevated follicle-stimulating hormone level or FSH and low estrogen. That's really the textbook definition of being postmenopausal. Before we talk about what that FSH and that estradiol should be postmenopausally let me take you back to premenopausal reference ranges estrogen is this you know favorite hormone of mine obviously no secret there estrogen is always in flux it's going up and down and up and down the peak of estrogen is when when we, we ovulate if we're premenopausal and that dip, that low in estrogen, typically happens right before we menstruate, before our periods. Now, progesterone does the opposite. Progesterone dips at ovulation, and then right before the period, it starts to increase. Progesterone is the hormone that can cause bloating, food cravings, irritability. There you have that physiologic PMS. PMS. So the basic there is that estrogen level fluctuates, but fluctuates from what to what, right? So if I was to check someone who's premenopausal, estrogen levels fluctuate anywhere from probably 50 to 450, maybe even 500 every single month, just up and down and up and down. And I could test her you know, several days in a row and I'd probably start to see that trend. On average, let's say if you're premenopausal, your estrogen level is probably somewhere around 150 200. Now postmenopausally, we don't make any estrogen anymore. Your ovaries are the factory that make all the estrogen. And at menopause, your ovaries have said, we're we are going into retirement. We're we are done here. <laughs> We've spent many decades helping you out on the reproductive train. And we want to call it quits. All right. When your ovaries shut down, by definition, we don't make any estrogen anymore. Now, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Some women do make some minute levels of estrogen. And where do they make that from? Well, research shows that some adipose tissue is making estrogen and maybe a little bit from the adrenal gland. So postmenopausally, if I was to go to the grocery store down the street and say, Everyone who is postmenopausal, not on any type of hormone therapy, I want to check your estrogen levels, everyone's estrogen would be between probably zero and, and maybe twenty. So between zero and twenty or less than twenty is considered an acceptable postmenopausal range of estrogen. So you'll hear a lot of people say you don't make any estrogen after menopause anymore. And that's really fairly true you know even if you're making 18 17 16 compared to levels of 100 200 300 on average it's it's minute it's very 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 small but you might still want to question oh if you make a little bit versus none do you have less symptoms we don't really know so all we really say after menopause your estrogen pff, between 0 and 20 now your follicle stimulating hormone level starts to go up and I'm going to start calling that FSH4 short because that's what's going to show up on your labs. Your FSH hormone is the signal that comes from your brain to your ovaries to say, dude, give us some estrogen. When your ovaries have retired that FSH is getting louder and louder and louder and like no one's home. So it just keeps shouting from the rooftops. That's why that FSH level rises postmenopausally. So if you're asking, okay, what's an average postmenopausal FSH, it's usually somewhere in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, the textbook says anywhere over 35. So I'm going to say a little bit higher because I check FSH levels all the time. And I see FSH levels anywhere from 35 all the way up to 120. I've seen some as high as like 140, 150, 160. You may ask the same question of does a higher FSH correlate with like more menopausal syndromes or worse or longer? We don't know. So if you ask that question, kudos, because good question. We don't know what a high FSH means, if it means anything at all. But that's what you're going to see postmenopausally low estrogen, high FSH. So, if your doctor says everything's normal, but you're postmenopausal, let's say your last period was two years ago, you're having hot flashes. Well, your labs, your labs don't mean anything. Sorry to say. It's your symptoms that mean something. Of course, that's what your levels are going to be because I just kind of told you that. So, Again, when I'm in a visit with a patient and she's, you know, postmenopausal clearly because it's been one, two, three, whatever, years since her last period, I will always come up with a plan, um, whether we're talking about lifestyle or non-hormonal or hormone therapy, and then I'll say, do you want to get your levels checked? She'll look at me like, I don't know, you're the doctor, and I say, look, I don't need them. To treat you, even if we're going to use hormone therapy, because I know you're postmenopausal. You haven't had a period in X number of years. You have all the classic symptoms. So I don't need to, but I offer that to you because some people really love data. Some people do feel more validated if they can get their levels checked. So I absolutely offer it. It is no sweat off my back for you to have your labs tested. And it, it's just a really easy thing to do. So I hope that explains what labs mean postmenopausally. Now, do I need your progesterone level? Actually, no. There's actually no useful clinical uh, information we're going to gather from your progesterone. Now, it's probably going to be low, and so is your testosterone. But let's go back to progesterone. So back to progesterone, that level's going to decline. And really, the main thing that we want to do with progesterone is if we're prescribing you an estrogen for hormone therapy and you have your uterus, we need to match that progesterone dosage to the right estrogen dosage to make sure we don't increase your risk for uterine cancer when giving you hormone therapy. And I know that sounds scary, but I promise you, we will not increase your risk for uterine cancer so long as we give you the right dose of progesterone to balance the right dose of estrogen. So your progesterone level isn't really all that helpful. And yes, testosterone level also tends to be low, but not always. So I do like to check testosterone levels, and that's because I do end up prescribing a fair amount of uh, physiologic low-dose topical testosterone. I've got many podcasts and YouTube videos on testosterone, but particularly for women with low libido and low testosterone, uh, they're good candidates for testosterone replacement, and so I'll often check it. And it usually tends to be low. So the reference range for testosterone for women depends on your lab. Mine used to be eight, uh, sorry, mine used to be six to 80 or six to 60, I think. And now it's like two to 45. So it's kind of, you know, low Uh, male levels of testosterone usually somewhere around like 400. And I'm doing a lot of hand waving because I don't see men on the lower level for men, like 200 up to like 500, I think is like the male range for testosterone. So you know, women make testosterone, men just make 10 times more than we do, but we do make testosterone and it is an important hormone. So I don't usually prescribe testosterone at the first visit, but I do like to check testosterone in my patients who do report low libido that's bothersome to them because they want to see if they are candidates for testosterone replacement. I said typically it's low, but every once in a while a testosterone level can come back high. So why would that be? It's actually a stress response. So your your brain is saying ovaries, hey, get, hey, 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 where's the estrogen? Your ovaries are like, we we shut it down. <laughs> why didn't you get the message? No, why didn't you get the memo? So your uh, you know, your signals will start going to your adrenal glands, like knock on their door and say, you know, do you have any estrogen? We're looking for it. And they say, no. Uh, but we have something that looks chemically kind of similar. We have testosterone, we have cortisol. We'll squirt out some of those. So that's one of the reasons why people will say, you know, your cortisol levels are high or your stress levels are high. Or if you start to see facial hair or that like mustache, you know, your adrenals are trying to work, overdrive to help answer the questions that your brain and your body are asking them, but they're not secreting the right chemicals. So that's one reason why testosterone levels sometimes actually can be high and then we wouldn't want to replace testosterone for you because we'd only increase that hirsutism, which is that facial hair. You don't want any more of that. And so, you know, quickly on the cortisol, I don't check cortisol. Why? It's also, there's no like anti-cortisol medication. You know, we have to create homeostasis, balance, happiness in your body. And if we're treating menopause appropriately, that's what we're going to do. So, you know, to summarize postmenopausal labs, you've got low estrogen, high FSH. Typically, low testosterone, but you want to check it and make sure it's not high. Progesterone, not all that useful, and other labs like cortisol are not terribly useful. Now, again, sometimes I'm doing a bigger panel, and I want to check your thyroid, and I want to check your A1C, and I want to check your ferritin, and I want to check you know, a couple other things, but most docs can understand how to interpret those. It's really just these female sex hormones that I'm really honing in on, because that's where a lot of the confusion does come from. Now, quickly, before we go to perimenopause, let's say you are on hormone therapy. What should your estrogen level be? This is a really good question. Your estrogen level should be somewhere around 40 to 70. If you've had premature menopause or early menopause or surgical menopause at a younger age, it can often go a little bit higher, sometimes 40 to 100, 110, 110. 120, I've even seen, and those levels are still really the goal for using postmenopausal hormone therapy. Now, I use two goals: clinical response and, you know, where your estrogen falls. But for the average woman on postmenopausal hormone therapy, she usually ends up with an estrogen level of somewhere around 56, right? So that should actually be really quite reassuring that. We are not giving you estrogen levels nearly at all close to when you are premenopausal and perimenopausal, or even if you're on birth control pills, which are actually really high levels of ethanol estradiol, high enough to stop your whole brain from ovulating. So postmenopausal doses of estrogen in general are particularly low. Do I check the FSH after I've started hormone therapy? No, because there's no good data to show that you should treat to target your FSH level. All right, before I lose you, let's go on to perimenopausal labs. This is definitely more complicated. There is no such thing as a normal or abnormal perimenopausal lab. That is the first thing off the bat. I want you to make sure that you understand if you are trying to interpret your labs because your clinician just didn't give you a satisfying answer or result. There's no such thing as a normal or abnormal perimenopausal lab. We've talked about the two most important ones, which is FSH and estradiol, and those two labs are going to give us the majority of what we need to know. Actually, I take that back. The majority of what we need to know is really going to come from your symptoms. So take lab work off the table for a second. If you really want to know what's happening in perimenopause, forget lab work. It's a shiny object. It's a distraction. It's a hope hope that you'll find an answer, but there is no answer in your lab work. What I want you to do is get out a journal. One of those old school journals that has like those calendars in it, I want you to start marking down like this is when I had a period, this is when I had spotting, this is when I was moody, this is when I had uh, hot flashes this night leading before my period of terrible insomnia and do that for, you know, month one, month two, month three. That is actually all I need to help diagnose perimenopause, whether it's early, whether it's late, and I actually have a lot more clues on how to treat you. Your lab work is, in all honesty, somewhat erroneous. Now, I still check lab work. I check it all the time because my patients, again, feel that validation, that comfort, that warm blanket feeling by checking their labs, and it's a okay if you're a data person, you want to follow that trend over time. I am all for it. More data, better. But I can help you without ever drawing your blood test. and it's not just because I am some miracle worker, but it's because it's so symptom driven. Postmenopause is also so symptom driven. So again, you don't need a lab work, a lick of lab works in the world to help figure out whether you need, let's say, progesterone at bedtime because you're having insomnia or an estrogen patch the week before your period because you're having brain fog and hot flashes and can't sleep because you're tossing and turning. I don't need labs to tell me that i need a really good clinical history from you so journaling and tracking is so so crucial that's all the data that you would ever need but for completeness sake let's talk about lab work and perimenopause now in this case fsh is going to be the most helpful to track over time estradiol is just going to be floating around up and down high low volatile and it's going to depend where you are in your cycle. So FSH is the most helpful thing to track over time if you want to track something. And for those of you who don't have periods, let's say you've had an ablation, you have a Mirena IUD, and you're thinking to yourself, "Well, Dr. Hirsch, I can't really, I don't, I don't have any periods anymore. I've had a hysterectomy. Like nothing's coming out of there." You know, FSH levels are going to be your best friend here. Still track your symptoms because you want to see is there some cyclic pattern to it. That would mean it's you know more perimenopausal. If if it's you know consistent, constant persistent, that's more postmenopausal based on you know frequency of of symptoms. So FSH here is going to be your friend. A perimenopausal FSH, the, these numbers can really jump around. So typically you'll see something like 27, 32, 42, then 17. you'll really kind of see these numbers somewhere between you know the low 20s, maybe even dip into the teens to like the 40s and they'll just, you know, kind of bop around between those numbers. But you, well, I was going to say you never see like a really high FSH, but that's totally untrue. I'll see a, someone have 90 FSH and or 70, and then, you know, the next three months it's like back to 29. But that's really common for perimenopause. It's really can very much trick you. So if you have periods, it is so helpful to, you know, chart that FSH Uh, if you want to along with your cycle and if you're not having periods or, or you don't have periods for some reason you know still continuing to track and track that FSH over time menopause they'll say again by the textbook is two levels over 35 but I have definitely seen that can trick you you know where FSH can really really bounce around and estrogen of course it's going to bounce around and be quite volatile. So I often see it, you know, um, 100 and um, the high 90s and the hundreds. Sometimes it'll dip really low and then pop back up to like 250. So you see these really volatile numbers. So what happens is uh, someone is uh, typically in perimenopause and goes to their doctor and says, I think I'm having some hormonal imbalances because I'm having these you know, terrible insomnia before my period and like hot flashes when I'm, you know, uh, ovulating and like I need help. And she gets this FSH and it's 27 and she gets an estrogen that's, you know, 79. Her doctor says, well, your labs are normal. Well, again, there's no such thing here. It's just what they were on that day. Clinical history trumps that lab work. What I like to do in my clinic then is really kind of tease this out by symptoms. Again, is it cyclic? That's perimenopause. Is it persistent, consistent? That's postmenopause. Of course, if it's been more than a year without a period, that's postmenopause. So in perimenopause, I'm really looking at your symptoms and taking that lab work into clinical consideration to help make a diagnosis. Now, Where's one place that might help me? Well, if I'm trying to help figure out if this is early perimenopause versus late perimenopause, late perimenopause is going to look, feel, smell a lot like postmenopause, but that patient may still be having very infrequent menses. So typical scenario here is someone who's having a period like every three months, you check her labs like smack in the middle of that. You know, 45 days in her FSH was like 60 and her estrogen's like, you know, something... A random, like forty, and you're like, ah, gee, you know, if he, if she wasn't really tracking periods or she wasn't really sure, you kind of don't know. But I'd probably treat that patient more like she was postmenopausal. And then have her keep a really good diary. Let's say I have someone who's had a hysterectomy and she's coming to me with symptoms that sound, you know, kind of a little bit more cyclic. Her FSH is 14, her estrogen 70. I check it a month later. Her FSH is 31, her estrogen is 100. I'm going to treat her like maybe early, or sorry, yeah, early, early perimenopause, and maybe consider like a birth control pill, which I call. Perimenopausal pills, because everything doesn't have to be about stopping our reproductive cycle. It can it can be about controlling symptoms, and uh, I have lots of podcast episodes on how to treat perimenopause. And those two big ways: birth control pills or per, perimenopausal pills, OCPs, and actually using postmenopausal hormone therapy, which I often do. Um, When it's late perimenopause, there's no reason you can't do it. When it's early perimenopause, but there's just so much here to be said about the fact that, you know, what I really want you to be taking home from this is that your symptoms are really so important here, and that's what cinches the diagnosis. Perimenopause is what we call a clinical diagnosis. I'm the clinician. I decide. Unlike something like diabetes. Diabetes is not diagnosed by your doctor just saying, hmm, (laughs) You look like you have diabetes. No, it's based on objective data. You have an A1C of 6.5 and up. Boom, diagnosis. Hypertension. You have a blood pressure of over 140, over 90, on more than two occasions. Boom, diagnosis of hypertension, right? Um, Name something else, high cholesterol. Boom, on your labs. So clinical diagnoses, something like depression, anxiety, anxiety, Something that a clinician has to actually decide not based on objective data, but more subjective data is exactly the point that perimenopausal lab work is just not that helpful. Now, if you are on birth control pills or you have any forms of systemic contraception, then lab work is erroneous. Erroneous. falso, Falsetto. So that could be the Nexplanon, that could be the depot injection, that could be birth control pills, the NuvaRing, the patch, not a Marina. I'm going to come back to Marina in a second. But any type of systemic hormone therapy, the, the brain is not systemic, that will always give you a very uh, low FSH, a falsely low FSH. Because those medications are stopping ovulation, your brain is not working so hard to get the hormones. They're like, oh, there's enough hormones around your FSH is like, okay, I'm kicking back. I'm doing something else. And so that FSH stays is really low. So in theory, I could have an 80 year old lady on birth control pills. Her FSH would probably be like four, but that's a falsely low birth control from, or sorry, that's a falsely low FSH from the, the birth control that she's on. Now a marina is going to work differently. A marina is releasing progesterone or levonorgestrel, uh, to be exact, just into the uterus. It doesn't go systemically, so you can still get an accurate FSH if you have an IUD. So if you have an IUD which I do, and I would probably have an IUD through perimenopause, you know, I would be looking at my FSH like every six months and checking my symptoms and treating to my symptoms, not to my lab work. Although again, if you're curious, you want to check that FSH every couple of months, you know, every three to six months, don't overkill it. That can really, really help you. Now, what about our old friend progesterone? Is that helpful? Well, you know, Again, I, I have the same theory here of, like, if you want your labs tested, I am, yes, I will pop those babies in, and you can go right down to the lab. Again, more data is helpful. It's just that you you have to sort of know what you're doing with them and, again, how you were feeling around the time that your labs were taken. Progesterone, we know, tends to dip even before estrogen does. So progesterone kind of takes a dive. And so we can see low progesterone levels in perimenopause earlier than we start to see persistent, consistently lower estrogen levels. Why is that helpful? You know, it's, again, so for some women in perimenopause, I do use progesterone only without estrogen. Progesterone can be really helpful for certain symptoms, specifically insomnia and nighttime anxiety. Now, if you had a normal progesterone level, would I say oh let's not do progesterone no kind of unlike the testosterone so i guess it's not as easy as it seems but you know more progesterone isn't necessarily harmful and what we want to see is actually do you have a clinical response so if i give you progesterone and you're clinically improved you know that's great um there's actually nothing that we know of medically that you could have too much progesterone Too much testosterone, on the other hand, not so much of a good thing. We don't usually do testosterone in perimenopause. Sometimes, actually, yes, but not always, and only if testosterone levels are low. All right, well, that about sums it up. I've got a little one who's coming to me who wants to hear a bedtime story. Is that right, sweetie? Mm -hmm. You want to say hi? Hi. Hi. So I will leave you for this week. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. I am terribly sorry for this podcast headset that I have to use this week and probably for the next one to two weeks. I love being able to record the show for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. And uh, definitely consider subscribing to my subscribers only show. I'm going to talk a little bit about the move and where I'm going. And and um, I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. All right, bye, everyone. we